There's an old story in, I think it's one of the books of the kings, first kings or second kings, where those guys used to fight each other in battle. The kings would lead their, their guys out, and one king was going to fight another and was pretty cocky about it. He's actually sending messages onto this king to taunt the other one. And the guy that was being taunted kind of held his peace for a while, and then he finally thought of something he wanted to say back. I thought it was great. He said, the one who puts his armor on should not boast like the one who takes his armor off. Isn't that a great line? So we won't talk about the Patriots this week. <laughs> now, now, maybe in the future. No, I wouldn't do that. That wouldn't be appropriate in church, would it, Mike? Why do you have Go Eagle signs down here on your... What's going on? It's a treat to get to speak for Greg every time. It's unusual for him to be here and watch me. It's kind of like the substitute teacher, so you guys need to behave this time. It's not like the other times. No more spitball, Mark. No spitballs, okay? We're going to do a lot of Bible work this morning, so if you want to get a Bible in your hands, we're going to go to John chapter 9 this morning. John chapter 9. It's a long chapter, and uh, if you've got, if you've got uh, one of the red Bibles in your hand from the, the shelf on the chair in front of you, it's page 644. Page 644. I looked that up for you ahead of time. The event we're going to look at from the life of Jesus Christ contains some really important thoughts about how we can more clearly see our invisible God, how we can more clearly see our invisible God, and hopefully in doing this, the flip side will also be a byproduct of our study. We can, we can have an idea of God's perspective of us. How does God really see me? That's kind of how we titled this, this message this morning. I don't know if you're one to follow all the investigations in the news. I mean, it probably goes on forever. We, we have our investigators that, that dig deep and try to find out the truth about some transgression, it may surprise you to know that Jesus himself was a subject of multiple investigations during his lifetime. Our investigators have dug out some, some really tough things lately, haven't we? Just, we just are finding about a 20-year violation of trust by that, that doctor that has been caring for the gymnasts. So sometimes our investigations are on big things and create all kinds of public awareness. Other times it's kind of smaller things like deflated footballs that nobody would really care about anyway. <laughs> in, in, in Jesus' case, in Jesus' case, the investigation came in kind of a similar way. He was being investigated for a trans transgression, supposedly, but it was for something that he had done that was really, really good. In fact, it was miraculous what he had done but there was a slight technicality perceived by the technicality police of his day in the way he had performed his miracle. And so these fellows decided they need to open an investigation, and they thought they would start with the man who was the beneficiary of the miracle, the man who received the miracle from Jesus. So we're going to start in just a moment in John chapter 9, verse 10, we'll have it up on the screen, but hopefully you've got a Bible near you now. Before we do that, why don't we just briefly pause and ask the Lord to bless our time as we read his word. And Lord, we're thankful for this word. Uh, we know it is truth. There's so many ways we've been able to figure that out over years, and we're so grateful to have this word from you. Pray that you would make this understandable to us today. Help us to grasp uh, the truth that comes out of this story about you, 
about your son and, and maybe even a little bit about ourselves. Bless this time now in your word, Lord, and let your Holy Spirit be our teacher. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, well, in true investigative fashion, this man that Jesus performed a miracle on faced a bunch of questions, and we're going to kind of start with some right now. If you look at John 9, 10 through 12, here's how it begins. They asked, who healed you? What happened? He told them, the man they called Jesus made mud and spread it over my eyes and told me, go to the pool of Siloam and wash yourself. So I went and washed, and now I can see. Where is he now? They asked. I don't know, he replied. And the stark, snarky side of me thought he's probably thinking, I was blind at the time. I don't know where he is. But he didn't say that in the scripture, right? This is not enough detail for our investigation. I just wanted to start there so you could get our minds going that way. Why don't we go find out what all the facts were of this story? We'll walk backward to the very first part of John 9 now, John 9, 1 through 7. It says this, as Jesus was walking along, he saw a man who had been Blind from birth, blind from birth. Rabbi, which just means teacher. Rabbi, his disciples asked him, why was this man born blind? Was it because of his own sins or his parents' sins? It's quite a question, isn't it? It was not because of his sins or his parents' sins, Jesus answered. This happened so the power of God could be seen in him. We must quickly carry out the tasks assigned us by the one who sent us. The night is coming and then no one can work. But while I am here in the world, I am the light of the world. Then this is a little indelicate. Then he spit on the ground, made mud with the saliva and spread the mud over the blind man's eyes. He told him, go wash yourself in the pool of Siloam. Siloam means sent. So the man went and washed and came back seeing. There's a lot in those verses, isn't there? Let's just kind of stay, let's stay with the investigative angle of this first. Did you catch the technicality in the way Jesus performed the miracle that had some of the people a little uh, confused, a little out of sorts? Here's how the, the Pharisees, the technicality police of the day, judged what had happened out there with this blind man. John 9, 16, some of the Pharisees said, this man Jesus is not from God, for he is working on the Sabbath. That was the big offense, that was the technicality. Others said, but how could an ordinary sinner do such miraculous signs? So there was a deep division of opinion among them. And right here's where we get our first lesson about things that might get in the way of us seeing God clearly. We get a first view of obstruction that can come so that we really don't understand who our God is. We need to be very skeptical of deeply religious or deeply authoritarian leaders, people who view God mainly as just a distant judge whose sole interest is whether we're keeping his rules and keeping his rituals and keeping his regulations followed. Such people with these kind of hearts don't tend to really care a lot about the individual. It's all about the religion. And it often leads, as we're going to see, to, to hurt and exclusion for the people that supposedly 
these leaders are supposed to be serving. Jesus is violating one of their regulations, not one of God's, it's one of their regulations, spitting in the dirt and making mud was somehow elevated in their world to the offense of violating, working on the Sabbath, their holy day. From Jesus' perspective, as they zero in on that obscure priority of theirs, he is seeing that they're revealing themselves to be the ones who are blind. They are, they are blind to what God really cared about on that day, the healing, the restoration of a man who had been blind from birth. And in this way, Jesus is showing us the counter perspective. He's giving us a clear view of what God was really caring about on that day, that our God as we sang about this morning, is about healing, he's about redemption, he's about restoration. Many, many religious people miss this point completely. And unfortunately, the leaders in those kinds of religions have this inaccurate view of God and it's, it's costing something. There are two really sad outcomes that I could think of that comes out of this kind of perception of God as rule, judging, distant, uh, not caring about the individual kind of God. The first cost they experience, the first sad outcome to me is that they miss an opportunity personally to, to find joy, <laughs> to, to celebrate the joy of a fabulous miracle that happened basically right in their community, right before their eyes. And instead of being able to celebrate they're, they're looking for ticky-tack little reasons to, to kind of push things down, block things out. You know, you, you're probably like me. You've probably known many people over the years that have said, if God just came down and did a miracle for me right now, then I'd believe in him, right? How many people say that? But the truth is, when your heart is stubborn toward God, a miracle can happen right in front of your eyes and you'll, you'll still find a way to block that out. You'll still find a way to block out that kind of view of God. That's partially why God doesn't just do miracles on a whim for us. The second sad outcome is the ripple effect of these leaders. Not only are they missing the joy of the miracle, but they've, obstruct, they've obstructed the ability of the people that they lead that really want to celebrate this. They really want individually and as a community to be excited about this and to see God this way. And instead, they're, they're put in a place of fear. Like, oh, no, uh, we, we might have violated a rule here somewhere. And, and in this culture, what we're going to see is that led to real problems. It led to ostracism punishment because they violated the, the, the rulers, the, the authority of these legalistic rulers. In fact, I'd like, you to, I'd like to take us to another place where we see the lonely place that this reaction from the leaders had in the life of the blind man himself. We'll see that the reaction is so severe to this poor fellow that before he was living as a blind beggar, 
just kind of a lonely life anyway. Now he's got his sight, but he's right back out on the outside again looking in. Listen to what happened. You remember at the end of that verse we just read, verse 16, there was a deep division of opinion among the people, among the leaders. Is this a violation? Is Jesus from God or is Jesus doing miracles? And so what do investigators do when their facts don't kind of line up, they don't know what to do? They, they start all over again. <laughs> they, they go back and they want to start the questioning process all over again. I don't know if they were on the clock, if they were getting paid by the hour, but whatever happens, it's a here we go again scenario. They call the blind men back in and this formerly blind man saw through their nonsense very quickly. And he very bravely stood up and he did what most of us would like to do with poorly handled authority. He spoke truth to power. This is a great little paragraph from John 9, 27. And their response to him in the, at the end of this pretty quickly reveals what's really going on in the hearts of these individuals. It's pretty, pretty personal, it's pretty ugly. Why don't we look at that? John 9, 27 through 34. Look, the man exclaimed, this is the blind man, I told you once, didn't you listen? Why do you want to hear it again? Do you want to become his disciples too? He's got a little edge to him, doesn't he? He's got a little boldness here. Then they cursed him and said, you are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know God spoke to Moses, but we don't even know where this man comes from. Well, that's very strange, the man replied. He healed my eyes, and yet you don't know where he comes from? We know that God doesn't listen to sinners, but he is ready to hear those who worship him and do his will. Ever since the world began, no one has been able to open the eyes of someone born blind. If this man were not from God, he couldn't have done it. And they became soft and listened to him and agreed and said, yeah, you're right, I see your point. That's not what stubborn hearts do. Look at this response. You were born a total sinner. They answered, are you trying to teach us? And they threw him out of the synagogue. The New International Version of the Bible, I, I kind of grew up with that, so there's a, an interesting way this last line is interpreted there. It says, they said to him, you were steeped in sin at birth. It's like you were soaking in sin. You were steeped in sin at birth. How dare you lecture us? That's the heart that comes through from these individuals. And then we see that last line, they threw him out of the synagogue. They're not just you know, tossing him out of the building. They're literally excommunicating him from his synagogue community. This was the center of life for the Jewish people in these cities. And now he's on the outside of his synagogue from his family, from his friends, from his whole support system. Instead of celebrating this great miracle that Jesus has done, these people's incomplete, inaccurate view of God is just producing pain. It's producing painful words. It's pr producing painful outcomes, especially in the life of this man. And maybe the most hurtful words that I read in that passage is that they were, they were insinuating that the man was born blind because of some responsibility he, for, he bore for sins at birth. Now, how does that make any sense? Somehow he was getting what he deserved when he was born blind. 
You know, there must have been a little of that thinking going on in the society of that day because we noticed the disciples had a similar question when they were just talking to Jesus and when they came across this man. Do you remember that? Becker, can you bring up uh, John 9, 1 again? As Jesus was walking along, it says, he saw a man who had been blind from birth. Rabbi, teacher, his disciples asked him, why was this man born blind? Was it because of his own sins or his parents' sins? There it is. That concept is in their, in their, their mind, isn't it? It was not because of his sins or his parents' sins, Jesus answered. This happened so the power of God could be seen in him. Now, implied in their question is that there's another kind of clouded view we can get that keeps us from seeing the truth about our God. And it's this kind of idea of God that he's just a disinterested teacher. You know, Jesus, we got this theological question we'd like to ask you. There's a blind man sitting right there in great need, and they just kind of want to talk theology. Sometimes we think of God as this disinterested teacher expressing great, grand theological thoughts that only deeply devoted pastors and gurus can begin to grasp and answering questions that nobody really asks and leaving the questions, the heartfelt questions that we have to just hang in our hearts while God seems to remain silent. In this man's world, I imagine his question was, why was I born blind? Instead of that kind of theological distant response, Jesus' approach to the man is just so refreshing to me. He doesn't just pass by conducting a lecture on the connections between sin and blindness in the life of a person. That might have been what this blind man expected. How many times do you think he had sat out there begging and people had just walked on by and, and tried to pretend he wasn't there? How many times do you think he had heard people ask questions about this situation that he was in with the underlying implication that you know, there was something about his parents, they were disrespectful to his parents or they were demeaning kind of presumptive about whatever sin might have been going on in his heart. He's probably wanted many times as he sat out there to say, here I am. I'm, I'm not deaf. I'm blind. I can hear what you're saying. And he just felt more and more pushed away by people seeing him as a condition instead of as, a, as an individual. And in Jesus's response to this man, we get everything we hope for. In, in God's view of our suffering. We get this view of God that is everything we hope for as we go through our difficult times. He doesn't walk on by. He looks right at the man and he engages with him. He doesn't dodge the question. He answers the question in a way that only our Christian God would answer it. He's, he's, his actions show he's quite aware of the man's suffering. He's not oblivious to his condition. He knows exactly what's going on in that man's life. And he has compassion for him. The word means suffer with compassion. Jesus has compassion on him. And he stands ready to alleviate 
the problem, and I like the way he said it, so that God's power could be seen in him. He wants to, to handle this with a demonstration of God's power. You know, in some worldviews in our world, the disciples of a different religious group wouldn't even ask this question. They wouldn't even think about it. They would see a person in need and in suffering, and in the worldview where reincarnation is prominent, they would say, well, he's just uh, suffering his karma. He's suffering now for the events that took place in his prior life. And in that view, a lot of times they'll say, and we don't want to help him. We don't want to get involved there because we might mess his karma up and make it even worse for him in the next life. And it's why we often see in some of these cultures where, where reincarnation is prominent that we see some of the, the gravest suffering going on and seemingly no one doing anything to fix it. There's another major worldview that would say, well, it's tough. It's tough that's going on. That's just God's will. It's just God's will, and it's kind of a distant thing, and we don't really need to engage here because that's between the individual and God. In our view of suffering, in the Christian worldview, there's no easy answers. There's many, many facets to why we suffer, but one of the, one of the driving hopes in our view is that all suffering is temporary. All suffering is temporary and that our God's heart is one day to restore and to renew and to redeem all of that. All that is, is wrong will be made right. And whether it really was your sin that put you in the difficult situation you're in, or whether it had nothing to do with you, or maybe it was a combination of factors that all contributed to that, that's not the issue for God. He sees what you are, and he sees what you can become. And he tells us this is not gonna last forever. I have something far better planned for each of you. And sometimes, as in this situation, he does something about it right now. Jesus can give you and me power to see us through whatever suffering we go on, go through, and sometimes, he will step in as he did here and bring healing sooner rather than later. He's not just a disinterested teacher, not just thinking about these issues as if there's some interesting questions, but throwing out irrelevant deep thoughts to people. He's deeply concerned with each one of us. He has a plan and a purpose that will let the power of God be seen in your life and mine, sometimes right through the very suffering that we endure. The practical reality of this, this way that God chooses to address suffering in our world, healing some, choosing not to heal others and just instead use his power to help them endure, practically that can look kind of weird and it can create another view, another, another skewed view of who our God is and that he's just kind of a a little bit disengaged, a little bit undiscerning benefactor. Yeah, he brings all kinds of good into the world, but you know what, he allows all kinds of bad stuff too, and maybe he's just not really paying much attention. There's not a lot of rhyme or reason sometimes that we can discern why was that person healed and that person not. Doesn't seem fair in some of our uh, mathematical thinking. One plus one doesn't equal two. 
he seems quite random in the way he makes these decisions in our lives. And in this story, it would be real easy to make this same kind of point as it affected the blind man. Before he met Jesus, he was a blind beggar and he was pretty much alone, out on his own. Now, after he's met Jesus, he's got his sight, but he's still alone. And maybe in a worse situation because he's been excluded now from his whole community. You can see how people can say, what is God doing? That's not how I would do it. <laughs> and the end of this story, the rest of this story is what I really want us to think about as we get ready to leave this morning. It's that God doesn't just hang him out after a brief celebrating miracle event. Look at what Jesus does next. Once he hears that man has been tossed out of his synagogue, look what comes next in John chapter 9, 35 through 38. I love this. When Jesus heard what had happened, he found the man, which means he went looking for him. When Jesus heard what had happened, he found the man and asked, do you believe in the Son of Man? The man answered, who is he, sir? I want to believe in him. You have seen him. Isn't that a great line? He probably hasn't seen very many people. And he says, you have seen him, Jesus said, and he is speaking with you. Yes, Lord, I believe, the man said, and he worshiped Jesus. Kind of a strange question Jesus asked him, wasn't it? Do you believe in the Son of Man? You know, the Son of Man was a title that Jesus used for himself. We see it quite often in the New Testament. It was a title that he took for himself a number of times, but he didn't just make it up. He didn't just pull it out of nowhere. It was specifically not his way of saying, I'm just a man. I'm not really God, as some, some uh, cynics argue about him. This reference to the Son of Man in the Jewish mind would have tied them back to an ancient prophet, the ancient prophet Daniel. And we're going to look at this as one of our last scriptures. In Daniel chapter 7, we find out that this title, Son of Man, evokes a powerful image of a being that is divine, but that is found in appearance as a man. Isn't that fascinating? All the way back in Daniel, this is one of the central truths of our Christian faith, that Jesus is fully divine and fully human. That the second person of the Trinity, we have God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, that God the Son took on a human nature along with his divine nature when he entered our, wor our world in the womb of a young lady named Mary. Look at what this prophecy Daniel wrote down 500 years before Jesus had this conversation. Look at the way Daniel positions this prophecy in the vision that he had seen about this being that was to come. In Daniel 7:13, he says, as my vision continued that night, I saw someone like a son of man. There's our phrase. I saw someone like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the ancient one and was led into his presence. He was given authority, honor, and sovereignty over all the nations of the world so that people of every race and nation and language would obey him. His rule is eternal. It will never end. 
His kingdom will never be destroyed. And then a little further down, it says, then the sovereignty, power, and greatness of all the kingdoms under heaven will be handed over to the holy people of the Most High. His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom, and all rulers will worship and obey him. This is who Jesus is introducing himself as to the, to the now formerly blind man. He's calling himself the son of man. And by implication of that, he's saying, I'm worthy of worship and obedience. I'm the one who was prophesied back in Daniel chapter 7. And we know from reading through the Bible that only God is worthy of worship. No angels, no superior, anything else. Only God is worthy of worship. The man who was born blind now sees clearly. <laughs> he sees a clear view of who God is. He's seen him through this whole uh, scene that has taken place. A God who wants to redeem and restore who sees through all the sin and suffering in his life to what he was made for and what he can again become and who will seek us out. This God of ours will seek us out in our lonely times, in our lonely places, even when we think no one else is even thinking about us. That's the clear view that this formerly blind man got of his God. That's how Jesus saw him, and that's how Jesus sees us. How do we relate to a God like that? Have you thought about that lately? He's so high up there. He's so awesome. What we read in Daniel 7, that's, that's Jesus. How do we relate? We talk about sometimes having a personal relationship with Jesus, and, and we do. But it's not like our buddy-buddy relationship. It's not even necessarily a, what we might think of as a friendship. The way we relate to this person, Jesus, is exactly the way that that man chose to relate to him in that moment. Did you see what it said at the very end there? He worshiped Jesus. And I, know, I know someone has shared this from the stage before because I remember hearing it here at Southwoods, but there's a great little... Uh, statement that a fellow named Archbishop William Temple put together about what worship means. Because sometimes we think of worship as getting together and singing and some of us raise our hands and some of us get, get our eyes closed and we tend to think mostly about singing. But listen to how this fellow develops the idea of worship and what I think was going on in the heart of this, this fellow who had been healed. It says, worship is the submission of all of our nature to God. It is the quickening of conscience by his holiness, the nourishment of mind with his truth, the purifying of imagination by his beauty, the opening of the heart to his love, the surrender of will to his purpose. All this gathered up in adoration, the most selfless emotion of which our nature is capable. It's worship. It's a worship relationship that God desires to have from us. And we can clearly see him now. That is who he is, and he is worthy of that response from us. 
So what's a good first step to move in that direction? If you feel your heart pulling toward, I, I want that kind of worship relationship with God. Need to get some mud? Want to maybe think, wouldn't it be funny if we had to like put mud streaks on our face or something? Thankfully, it's not mud. That was just for that guy. I mean, I was, I was kind of thinking how, how humiliating he, he must have felt as, as Jesus had put mud made with spit all over his eyes and says, okay, you go wash down there. What did the people think that saw him go by trying to find the pool with mud all over his face? Would have been so humiliating for him. But you know, once he got to that pool and he washed that mud away and he opened his eyes and he could see, can, can you imagine? I can't imagine he would have cared one whit what anybody would have thought about whether it was a humiliating thing for him or not. He could see. And we have uh, a command from God to do something that some people sometimes feels like that's a little humiliating for God to request that of me. It's not putting mud on, it's burying our bodies in a pool of water. We call it immersion. We call it baptism is our kind of uh, spiritual term from the Bible for that. And in that command, God is saying, this is the physical response I want from you to begin this worship relationship with me. Trust me. Trust that I've done in, in Jesus' death on the cross and his burial and then his resurrection from the dead. Trust that I will do the same for you and show that trust by letting someone bury you in water and then resurrect you back out. It's a beautiful picture of what this Jesus has done for us and this is how we worship him. The submission of all of our nature to him. I don't know if you've done that yet. I would encourage you, if you haven't, to really strongly consider that this morning. A lot of you have and I'd like to let this time that we're going to stand now and end this with a prayer, let this time be a time where you can re-establish a sense of gratitude and worship to God. Thank you for your attention today, guys. Father, we are uh, so thankful for this example from the life of a blind person who was healed. You give us hope that you can do the same in our lives, and I know there are people here that are that are wishing for that today, that they would want healing today. And God, we pray for that, we ask for that, and we know in your wisdom that sometimes you wanna use your power a different way in their lives. Help us all to be uh, in a posture of worship and trust that you will do the best for us. As, as that song that we sang together said, that, that you're working all things together for our good. Help us to trust you with that. Thank you for your son. Thank you, Jesus, for uh, what you were willing to do to submit yourself to this human life. And now we know who you are. We honor you. We worship you as the eternal Lord. We're so thankful that we can know you. Help us to live lives that would reflect that to all the people around us. And if someone doesn't know you here, God, come meet them today. If they're in a lonely place, come, come find them just like Jesus did and make this connection with their spirit so that they can know the reason for why they are here and the reason for um, their, their etern the reason they can have eternal life. And we're thankful for this, this 
wonderful church. Thank you for bringing Greg and Lori back safely. Just bless them and the work they're doing here among us and all the, all the leaders and, and uh, servants here. We're so thankful for this. In Jesus' name we pray all these things. Amen.